Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Friday, April 3rd. In today's news, America's economic picture is even bleaker than the 10 million unemployment claims filed in March suggest. Italy and Spain see their first positive indicators, but the EU could be falling apart. And a 104-year-old beats the coronavirus. But first, the big idea. The United States coronavirus death toll topped more than 1,000 yesterday alone. We have cemented our position as the new front line of this terrible contagion with more than 240,000 infections and about 6,000 total deaths here in the United States. The number of people infected worldwide passed 1 million yesterday, and the number of people who have died globally rose above 52,000. New York added more than 430 to its death toll, bringing the total there to more than 2,300. Neighboring New Jersey added another 180 deaths, bringing its total to 530. Michigan, which is drawing increasing concern, added 80 deaths, bringing its total to more than 410. Louisiana saw a 42% increase in the number of confirmed cases yesterday, a spike the governor attributes to reducing the backlog of tests. The state has 310 deaths. The Navy's hospital ship in New York, meanwhile, only has 20 patients aboard. The USNS Comfort's 1,000 beds are sitting mostly empty, and its 1,200-member crew is waiting around. This is infuriating local hospitals and doctors. Another Navy hospital ship, the USNS Mercy, docked in Los Angeles, only has 15 patients on board. A tangle of military protocols and bureaucratic hurdles have prevented the comfort and the mercy from taking aboard patients. The Navy is also refusing to treat anyone with the coronavirus. Guidelines disseminated to New York hospitals include a list of 49 medical conditions that would exclude a patient from being admitted to the ship. Ambulances are not allowed to take patients directly to the ships. They must first deliver them to city hospitals for lengthy evaluations, including a test for the virus, and then pick them up again for transport to the ship. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo says that if his state continues to use ventilators at the current rate, its stockpiles will be fully depleted in six days, five now. Despite the crisis, the administration is metaphorically shooting one of the messengers. Navy Captain Brett Crozier, the commanding officer of the USS Theodore Roosevelt, was relieved of his command yesterday at the direction of acting Navy Secretary Thomas Modley, a Trump appointee. The Navy has become increasingly convinced that the captain was involved in leaking the letter to the news media that forced the service to address his concerns over the outbreak aboard his ship and his complaints that the brass was not taking the crisis seriously enough. The acting secretary said his letter undermined more senior Navy leaders and made the military look bad. That was the point. Crozier asked that 90% of his crew, comprising more than 4,800 sailors, be removed to allow for testing, quarantining, and disinfecting the ship. Some 113 members of the crew had already tested positive as of yesterday, and even as he announced the captain was being relieved, the secretary said hundreds more aboard the ship probably have the virus. So it cost the captain his job, but his sailors are finally getting the help they need. Separately, we're hearing that the White House will soon urge Americans to begin wearing face coverings when they go in public. 
President Trump confirmed last night that there is a recommendation coming, but he said it won't be mandatory. Another White House official says the guidance will be more narrowly targeted to areas with high community transmission and that the matter remains under discussion. Either way, it's a good idea to start wearing a bandana or a scarf or something when you're out around other people. Last night, Trump invoked the Defense Production Act against 3M. The president announced that he's using the Korean War era law to compel the Minnesota company to provide more N95 masks for use by medical workers domestically. This is a sharp turnabout in the administration's posture toward both the law and the company. The continuing dearth of these masks for medical workers has become a symbol of the country's wider failure to prepare for and respond to the pandemic. And Debbie Burks, the coordinator of the White House task force, says the government is still not receiving the results of more than 50% of coronavirus tests that are being administered. She says that 1.3 million tests have been conducted in the United States, but the government only knows the results of about 660,000 of them. Meanwhile, medical experts and even Trump's own advisors are casting growing doubt on the White House's official death estimates. Leading disease forecasters, whose research the White House cited when concluding 100,000 to 240,000 Americans will die from the coronavirus, were mystified when they saw the projection earlier this week. These experts say they don't challenge the validity of the number, but they also don't know how the White House fully arrived at them. White House officials have refused to explain how they reached the figure, and they haven't provided any of their underlying data so that others can assess its reliability. They also haven't provided any long-term strategies beyond social distancing to lower the death count. Tony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, said during a private meeting in the White House Situation Room that there are just too many variables at play in this pandemic to make any of the models reliable. Robert Redfield, the director of the CDC, and the vice president's office have similarly voiced doubts about the accuracy of the projections. Jeffrey Shaman, a Columbia University epidemiologist whose models were cited by the White House, said his own work on the pandemic doesn't go far enough into the future to make the kind of predictions that the White House put out. Another key question is what time period the White House's 100,000 to 240,000 number covers. Imperial College London's worst case scenario calculated that the toll exacted by the virus would play out over a couple of years. But if the White House's projection covers only the next few months, the true death toll will almost certainly be larger because we'll continue to see additional waves of COVID-19 until a vaccine is deployed. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as this terrible week comes to an end. Number one, the coronavirus recession is shaping up to be the biggest blow to the American economy since the Great Recession, and fears are rising that it could take years to reverse the damage, especially for the millions of Americans who are losing their jobs and being forced to close down their small businesses. The past two weeks have wiped out all of the economy's job gains since President Trump's election in 2016, a sign of how rapid, deep, and painful the shutdown has been on American families who are struggling to pay rent, prescriptions, food, and health insurance in the middle of the crisis. The Labor Department reported on Thursday that more than 6.6 .6 million Americans applied for unemployment insurance benefits last week, shattering the previous record set the week before of 3.3 million claims. Economists think the true number of laid-off workers is probably way higher than the 10 million because 
Many people have not been able to complete their application since state employment office websites keep crashing and phone lines are swamped and go unanswered because there are so many people who have lost their jobs. The Economic Policy Institute predicts nearly 20 million Americans will be out of work by July. That would be the worst unemployment situation we've faced since the Great Depression. Even the normally cautious Congressional Budget Office is predicting the employment rate will soon exceed 10%. Goldman Sachs is out with a new projection that we will see a 9% contraction in the first quarter, which is through the end of March, and that the economy is on track to contract 34% in the second quarter. About half those losses could be recovered by the end of the year, Goldman says, because Americans will ostensibly start eating out again and getting haircuts again at some point. But there will be lots of pain left in the economy. And hotels, restaurants, malls, hair salons, and theaters have been among the hardest hit. But industries often considered recession-proof, including white-collar education, healthcare, and transportation are also experiencing furloughs and layoffs. Aerospace giant Boeing yesterday began offering buyouts to its nearly 100,000 U.S. workers, and radio broadcaster Intercom Communications said it will lay off or furlough a significant portion of its 2,800 employees. Meanwhile, JCPenney began furloughing the majority of its 90,000 employees. Number two, the Italian and Spanish ambassadors to the United States report signs of improvement in the coronavirus situation in their home countries. They tell us that the number of confirmed infections, hospitalizations, and deaths remain high, but all three metrics are beginning to stabilize. Italy's ambassador said yesterday that these are the first positive signs they've seen. They should be taken cautiously, but they do show that measures over there have started to pay off. In conversations with our reporters, the ambassador to Italy and Spain stressed the need for international solidarity and cooperation. They both cited the risk and their concern of growing authoritarianism in Europe. The virus is putting pressure not just on the health of their citizens, but also on the health of their democracies. And our correspondents on the ground in Europe report that leaders over there are getting more and more fearful that the pandemic could lead to the breakup of the European Union. Countries have begun to coordinate their efforts to procure supplies, and they've sent more aid to hard-hit Italy than China has. But the past week has seen a reemergence of a north-south rift over to how to handle the economic response. And the union is also being pulled east and west, as Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban has used emergency powers to, as I explained earlier this week, effectively end democracy there, riding roughshod over Europe's core principles and the rule of law. Collectively, these tensions could overwhelm the alliance, even if it exists in name. And over in Asia, Chinese leaders are preparing for their second wave of COVID-19. A top Chinese Communist Party official in Wuhan is warning that the outbreak could soon return and ravage the city once again. And he's pleading with higher-level Communist Party officials to provide more guidance to people, including telling them again to stay home and only leave when necessary. Saturday in China is what's called Tomb Sweeping Day. Families traditionally remove weeds and brush away dirt from the graves of their ancestors. But few will be tending graves this year. In fact, tens of thousands of Chinese families, especially in Wuhan, have still been unable to bury their dead. Number three, here in the United States, 
This virus is devastating Americans of every age. Jason Hargrove, a bus driver in Detroit, posted a video on his Facebook page on March 21st complaining that he had to pick up a passenger who was coughing openly, exposing him to the virus. Now he's dead at 50. Caroline Sanbi, the mother of six-year-old twins, died at 48, even though she had no underlying health problems. Her husband says she was a germaphobe and an obsessive hand washer. Ursula Osborne, who's only 41 and eight months pregnant with her second child, is isolating in her Boston home today with her three-year-old son after she tested positive. Her husband, Ray, who's only 40, is intubated on a ventilator and has been in a coma for a few weeks after contracting the virus. Doctors aren't sure if he'll make it. And she is a Polish immigrant who has no family in our country. And her family isn't able to fly out here to watch the three-year-old because of travel restrictions. Jessica Cortez, 32, died in Los Angeles just a day after being diagnosed and three years after she immigrated here from El Salvador. She's never had any health problems. Conrad Buchanan, a healthy 39-year-old DJ, died in Florida. His wife says he was denied a test because he was too young and lacked pre-existing conditions. Noel Sinkiat, a nurse who worked at Howard University Hospital here in D.C. for 41 years, died suddenly of the virus at 61. His wife, Lourdes, tested positive after his death, which meant that she cannot pick up his body or mourn with anyone else. She's alone in their empty house. Finally, though, let me close with a silver lining, some good news. When Bill Lapshies celebrated his 104th birthday with his family over chocolate cake and his favorite pizza yesterday, he wasn't just marking another annual milestone in his long, full life. He was also celebrating a full recovery from the coronavirus as one of the oldest known survivors. His illness played out like a roller coaster ride. Some days he appeared to improve, smiling behind a medical mask as uh, doctors prodded and poked him, checking for fever and respiratory distress. But other days his condition declined and his family at one point thought they were saying goodbye. They had to greet him through a window in his room and they called him on the phone so they could hear his voice. But then... He took a turn for the better, and doctors say he won the fight. Now Bill says he's feeling healthy again, and he was able to remove his mask and step outside for the first time in weeks. His daughter, Carol Lee, says he's perky and very excited. And we're all excited for him, too. And that's The Daily 202 for Friday, April 3rd. Thanks for listening. Our show is produced by Ariel Plotnick, and our theme music is by Ted Muldoon. I'm James Holman. Stay safe. I'll talk to you on Monday.